Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Helena Ross. Hi Helena. Hi. It's good to have you here. And without further ado, what will we be discussing today? A concept or idea that has helped you live a better life? Well, that's an easy one because it will be Tankespia, which is my life philosophy and was my life philosophy even before I knew the word. That's amazing. Um, so it's the first time we have a concept that's not in English. And I guess the logical thing to do would be to hear uh, a rough translation of it or a translation. So how do you go about explaining what Tankispiran is? Well, I do it in different ways. Tanki means thought. Oh. I should start with saying it's a Swedish word, but it's not an official Swedish word. You won't find it in any official dictionary. It's a mashup word of two, of two words, which is something that Swedish and the Germanic languages are quite good at that. So tanke means thought. Spjärn kind of means to brace or to when, you know, uh, you have to work a little bit. So that's what this concept is for me. It's like when something, when I come across something and it can be um, a sentence, something you say, uh, a painting, a yoga pose, or, you know, just anything really, a question where I just go, what how you know so it's like where it's not it's not streamlined you can say there is a kind of a pause there is an invitation to pause and take in what what is this how is this where is this and why is it different from what i think or thought so it is a little bit like a perspective shift but it can also be a perspective shift in that I spot a perspective of mine rather than receive another perspective. So, it, you know, it's like it, it's, it's a concept that's very, very versatile. Let's put it that way. Fantastic. That's fascinating. And I really like to hear uh, what was the first time and you said this predates actually knowing the word or coming up with the word but what was the first time that you felt this uh moment i guess when you come across something and it makes you go hmm or understanding that you're going to need to work um to work a bit to get to the bottom of things so for me the the pivotal moment of this that I can see in my life took place um, 14 years before I found the word. So in 99, I was married 
Um, and I was pregnant with our first child and our only child, as it were, when um, a month before I gave birth, my then husband called me up and said, I'm breaking up with you. Which is like, we're married, so you don't really break up, you divorce, sure, but break up is like, mm. but that gave me um, quite a big reason to stop and pause and think, hey, what the heck is going on here? And I mean, I had lots of thoughts about him, but more than that, I had a lot of thoughts about myself. So I asked myself the question, do I like who I am? Which for sure is a, a Tankesbian question. I also dared answer it honestly to myself, saying, heck no, I am so fed up with who I am. Which then, like you say, had me start to work. Because I, I knew who I was. I knew how I was. But if I didn't like that person, if that person that I, if that kind of the, the costume of the person that I had become really didn't fit me that well, how do you go about shifting that? Because at least for me, it wasn't as easy as just, you know, snap my fingers and bam, I'm in a new costume. It's like, no, I had to, I had to start to do the work. Um, and the reason why I say that I didn't, I was so, or the reason why I say I was so fed up with myself is because I had been the most negative person I'd ever met. You know, I was just so negative. I could see the negative in everything and everyone, including myself, of course. Um, and that was just a drag. But if I'm not negative, how am I then? No, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. So first of all, that sounds like a like a, a great big shock. Um, at least uh now. I of course I didn't know that was uh going to be your story. And to me it's a shock, but was was it a shock to you to get the message from your then husband? Um uh, or I'm sure that in retrospect it made sense to you. But at the time, were you stumped by it? Well, no, not really. We'd been together for 10 years and married for one year by that time. And we, you know, mutual agreement, consent to get married and to have me off the pill and, you know, let's try to make a baby. And when I got a positive pregnancy test i showed it to him and it was as if a switch came on or rather came off because he really shifted then which has a lot to do with his history which we don't need to go into but but his undealt with history in the past really just came in and, and shut him down in essence so i had a pregnancy where i was very sad. I cried a lot and I was pondering a lot and wondering and worrying about what kind of relationship am I bringing my, my baby into. Um, but 
the way he did it, that was a surprise. Um, that he could do it and what kind of followed, that was also a surprise because he's like, you, you don't do that. You don't call and break up with your wife that you've been together with for 10 years. You know, you sit down, you have a conversation or two or 15, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a matter of this year, I'm, I'm really, I have put to the forefront the fact that I, I want to be a person that says yes when I'm a yes and no when I'm a no. And I can trace that back to the person I was back then because I knew that we shouldn't have gotten married. I knew we shouldn't have had that kid. But I didn't act on it. And I'm very, very happy in a sense that I didn't because I don't think I'd be here the way I am if that hadn't happened. So I don't regret what happened. And, you know, I have a kid that I love more than anything, right? So it's not, I wish it hadn't happened, but I can see that, mm, yeah, that was what was going on. I wasn't honoring myself by actually living up to my yeses and nos. Um, right. So it, what, what really interests me is to ask you about the moment you, when you learn of this uh, divorce, <laughs> breakup as they called it, um, what there made you say yes for the first time, yes to, yes to changing, yes to actually going down a path of, of self-growth and um, taking the time to really think about it and actually solve the solve the problem that arose from that mm -hmm. um yeah can you attribute it to to anything or not really i don't i don't have an answer for that in essence but you know i don't know what made the question do you like who you are pop into my mind but i'm really and truly happy and grateful that I was open to hearing it and even more open to actually answering it honestly. And I, I guess it is, you know, it's like it, it, it's not uncommon that it takes some type of jolt, some type of trauma for things to kind of crack open in such a way that new things can happen. And I think that's what this was. It was like, that was enough of a jolt for me to have a little bit of a moment where something new could pop. And it was easier for me to respond to that something else than what it was to honor myself, you know, the years before this came, before it sort of came to this head-on collision. Um, so... In, in, you know, I, I, I say it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Right. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, it makes me think of all these near-death experiences that make people actually take a, make a sharp turn away from a destiny yeah. that, you know, that was probably um, a lot worse than what they eventually, um, what it eventually turned out to be. So 
what is the what is the what is the first thing that a person who doesn't like themselves do in terms of actual um, choices or changes in your thinking is it more your thinking that you worked on or is it or was it about adopting new habits um, or what changed everything both of those and probably another few ingredients um, I think I started with the with the thinking quite a lot um, and I You know, at the time, one month before my my baby was born, um, I you know, I was kind of busy. <laughs> so there was a lot of focus on one, you know, getting the divorce finalized and and moving his stuff out and and just preparing for for becoming a a, a mom. And then, you know, a solo mom, you've got your work cut out for you. So I think it internally quite a lot shifted, but it's not something that I can put my fingers on and say that tangibly until when my oldest then were a couple of years old, and I realized I need for me to become the person that I want to become and to become the mother I want to become. I need help. So I, I actually found a therapist. And started to go to therapy where I had one more of those really pivotal moments where in an interaction with my therapist I realized that I was extremely hard on myself my internal dialogue was akin to having Hitler Mao and Stalin take up residency within <laughs> me right it's like and she was, She said this, you know, you're so hard on yourself. And I kind of, you know, my jaw dropped and I said, don't I have to be? And she said, no, you know, I would have done this and that. And I just, you're serious? I don't have to think. I don't have to believe the thoughts in my head that say, you are scum. You're the worst. You're such, you're no good for nobody. You know, it's like all of this, I don't have to believe them. And she's like, no. So that's. That was one of those really, really pivotal moments where I could distance myself from my thoughts, from my internal dialogue in such a way that I could actually start to look at it and see, how is this serving me? How is this thought serving me? Or how is this story serving me? Or how is this habit serving me? Yeah, so it sounds like, and that, that would be an example of another uh, Tankispiran moment, right? Yep. So does it have in it uh, an aspect of being of having your identity not married to your thoughts? So within the theme of, of marriage and divorce, in, in other words, you, you managed to actually divorce your identity from your thoughts, and that was new to you? Yes, that was completely new to me. That was, that was a shocker. Um, in the same way that it was a shocker for me to kind of you know to see that okay here I am being all negative but it's not as if it's something that is inherent to me it is something I can change and the same goes here it's like I am harsh on myself with myself to myself it's not inherent it's not a must it's not something that cannot be changed it can be changed but that is Mindset shift 
really sparked a lot of work on habits because I had a lot of habits that were formed out of the basis of being hard on myself that I then started to identify, started to unlearn, and then I had to learn something else to replace it. Uh, and that took me a couple of years, or I'm probably not done yet, but uh, <laughs> I did a lot of work in the first few years there. Yeah. And what are we, if not just the sum of our habits, you know, that's, that's literally the meaning of the, of the word ethics and, and morality as well is just really, um, they both come from the uh, Greek and Latin respectively for a customer habit at the basis. Mm -hmm. And then we are our habits. So this becomes our character. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because, I think that we don't realize that we all have a morality and it's not neither good nor bad. It's just that in philosophy, we try and think about what morality we should have that is actually good for living well. Um, and this is, this seems to be the approach that you've taken then actually thoughtfully uh, trying to come up with the the good habits that are going to make you a person who is doing well in life. Uh, so would you share some of these habits? If the bad ones you recognize are the ones that of negativity, of overwhelming ne negativity in everything you think and do, uh, what were some of the first ones that you adopted as, as good habits? I think the the one of the main things for me was to stop judging myself so harshly. So noticing myself in moments when I was beating up on myself was the first step I had to stop beating up on myself. If I didn't know that I was doing it, I would just be continuing. So a layer of awareness or a light of awareness perhaps shown on me and my habits. So back then I used to call myself that I was such an angry mom. I could easily go into anger. It was a very, very, you know, instant reaction to anything really. And that was something that I was working with. So I could, you know, I had two kids by then and my, my, you know, they were in kindergarten and, and, and preschool and stuff. So I could come to work and think, hey, I shouted at the kids this morning, you know, hours after I could spot that, oh yeah, I was angry in the morning and I noticed around lunchtime or, you know, in the afternoon, it's like, ah, oh, Right. So there was quite a long delay. So that's probably what I did for the first six months in therapy work at shrinking the gap between the my reaction and my insight, my realization that I had reacted. Right. So, you know, it could, it shortened. And all of a sudden, it was like, half an hour after I could see it. And then it was like, when I was in it, I could see it. It's like, oh, I'm shouting at you. Hmm. Do I want to do that? No, I don't. Okay. And sometimes the answer was, yes, I do. And I shout, you know, kept at it. Right. But 
Then the magic moment came when I could tell I am about to start to shout at my kids. That is when I really had the choice. Do I want to do this? How will this serve? How will it serve them? How it will serve our day, you know, or won't it? So working at increasing my level of awareness had me come to the point where before I reacted, I gave myself a choice to act instead, um, Yeah, which has really, really served me. I can say. Yeah, that that's that's amazing. And it really resonates with me a lot. And thinking back about times in my life and specifically around the age of 19, I think when I was just starting to come out of a long period of depression. And I think that I would I would describe it in, in very similar terms to you when I started realizing that you know, we live in the world as if stuff happens to us all the time, stuff happens to us. And what is more convenient than kind of rationalizing and saying, well, look, this stuff happens to me all the time. You know, in my case, it was my mom dying when I was young. And you can ride that wave um, for very, very long in terms of how you're going to rationalize things so that everything seems like you're some sort of victim. Mm. But it's that moment, like you say, I think the moment that you mentioned at the beginning where you hit rock bottoms in some sense and you say, well, everything, everything is maybe everyone will even have uh, pity on me, will feel that, uh, yeah, I really got dealt some really shitty hand in life or whatever. But how does that help me? I'm still in the end. I'm just um, at the bottom of the ocean here, not really living the life I want and making that shift from being passive to active in life and realizing that we do have agency. It's not that life just happens to us tapping into the ability to take the initiative and really steer our life where we want them to go mm -hmm. rather than, rather than complaining about everything that's happening so it, it really resonates with me a lot. And I'm wondering, you know, what, how does this, how does the shift actually happen? And I don't have good answers from that, but uh, maybe you've thought about it. How do you gain that uh, buffer to, to really be there? And by buffer, I mean, having exactly that, that Thing that makes you stay behind the scenes and not identify with whatever emotion or thought you're having and actually being able to execute control over uh, the things that would usually just make you react. Mm. So I have, I have like two tools that one of them is, I, I call my glasses is when, when I was in therapy and I was working at this angry mom thing, it's like, okay, I don't want to be anger. It was as if I'd written anger on my glasses so that I was searching for it. And for some reason or other, I can be, we speak about having things top of mind, 
I'm really, really good at having things top of mind in the sense that that little, you know, it's almost like a banner going around in my head. It's like it was constantly there. So for some reason, I'm able to kind of pin one of those posts at the top of the feed to make sure that I constantly look at it. So those are my glasses. That's one thing that has helped me to to come to this point of where I can kind of the little pause between uh, uh, signal or trigger and what will the response be, right? It's a little pause, like you say, a little buffer, right? The other one is a question that I got in 2010, 2011, which is, how does this serve? Which I have literally asked myself out loud and silently in my head so many times that today that is an automated pattern in me. I don't have to ask myself that question. It goes, you know, neural pathways. I don't know how they work, but my how does this serve is, is one of the main ones that gives me also that little bit of pause, that little bit, you know, it's almost like a slalom course. It's like, okay, let's go through here and see where do we come out? How do I want to act? Because that's really what the question is. In this situation, how do I want to act in such a way that it will be of service? To me, to you, to my kids, to the surroundings, to the environment, to my cats, to the work, to, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be, how does this serve me? But rather, how does this serve? Um, so that question is one that, again, I kind of put on my glasses. Once I got it, I put the top of mind and I was asking myself constantly. And in that way, I could start to play with how am I in the world? Rather than go down the habitual, this is how Elena is. Yeah, but those habits, maybe they started, you know, when I was five or 15 or 25. Do they still serve me when I'm 40 or 50? Maybe, maybe not, right? And I want to take that agency. I want to own myself in the world. I own how I show up in the world, regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I can, again, relate with that so much. I think it's, it marks again, the jump from passivity to proactivity. And it's interesting. It's striking to me now that I think about how much we're being told, um, to be in the moment as if being in the moment is a really good thing. And in a sense it is, but thinking in terms of how will this serve, or in my case, for me, uh, doing dialectic, a very central concept to living well is, is the good, because well is the adverb of the good, and it's very important to find out what it is, and it turns out that it's a relation, uh, meaning simply what is fitting. And mm -hmm. if you're actually going around and you keep the concept of the good in your head, then you're doing basically just what you're describing now. You're always thinking, what is this good for? In very simple terms, not loaded, not being emotionally loaded, 
um, but really thinking rationally about what is how if I do this, how is this going to to turn out? What is it going to lead to? What is this good for? And in that sense, it's almost like being able to occupy a little bit of the future too, because you are looking ahead. You are considering the next moment. You know, you you already understand that if you're now going to shout and be angry, uh, you actually know very precisely what the next moment is going to look like. And if you decide to take different actions and experiment with it. And this is real experimentation. This is like being a scientist because you can then see if you are pretty good about making predictions about what your actions are going to lead to or pretty bad. We're probably pretty bad at the beginning. We don't know how people will react or things like that. But with experimentation, we can get to a point where we think, well, what is this good for? What am I trying to achieve? And then doing the thing that we conjecture is going to uh, get us there. And in a sense, it's very much being on top of things in the present because it has that, um, it has that uh, distance where it's not something that hits us and immediately we, um, we, we are triggered. But it's also keeping an eye out for the future and really aiming at things and yeah, it's, I think, the first thing that I think of it like that, where, you know, there's so much emphasis on being present. But actually, if you think logically and you do understand the concept of the good, you're also a little bit in the, in the future at the same time. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and it, it makes me think of one of the risks of the focus on being in the moment and being in the present is that it can, like you say, it can kind of lead to short-term um, desire, you know, oh, give me that marshmallow now, you know, to, to, to draw mm -hmm. in the marshmallow test. And it's like, give me, give me, give me. I need the satisfaction, the craving here, now, get it. But I like what you say, and this is something that, that, resonates a lot for me too it's like yes in the moment i have agency here and now and in the moment is all that there really is this is what is you know in every moment this is what is but when i asked how will this serve you know putting myself a day a year 10 years in the future and kind of looking back over my shoulder to see how will I feel about what I just decided in this moment in a year's time, in 10 years time? You know, how will I, so that it's, otherwise it's easy to, to get into this kind of quick fix, dopamine hitty um, aspect of living life. It's like, no, because it's not that, you know, there can be, shitty things going on in the moment that are really hard and really takes effort and everything. And if I was only thinking about here and now, maybe I would take the easy way out with bunny ears. But again, putting myself in that future position, looking back over my shoulder, will I feel proud of myself that I did what I did? Will 
this be of benefit to me and others? Will this be serving in a longer perspective? Um, I think that is a very important aspect of, of, of living well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to me, I've, I've had the thought before about the whole notion of um, being an author and authority and connecting the two, seeing what, where it actually comes from. Um, because to really embody understanding and to apply it in the real world, we, we need to feel like there is authority in, in, what we're, in what we're thinking and in our thought. We need to take them seriously enough so that we apply them. And also there's the aspect of now that you're saying it, like you're thinking ahead and it's almost as if you're reading the book that is your life, right? The story of your life. You're also trying to be more proactively the author of, of your uh, narrative in life and choosing from those narratives, right? So presumably, and you haven't said it explicitly, but would it be true to say that also your decision to stop with negativity was also a decision to um, have that twist in the plot or being fed up with the, with the plot as it was? It was becoming kind of stale and uninteresting because... You were, um, you were not a round character. You were just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. kind of one-dimensional. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect was in the situation at hand, if I had stayed with the negative, I had a feeling that I would have killed both me and my, my unborn child. You know, I can't. I can't go into this next phase of becoming a single mom when I really didn't think that that was on the table for me with that same negative uh, attitude towards everything. It's like, that's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. So yes, I most definitely had this sense of I need to and want to do this work so that I can give my kid a better shot, which also is the reason why I went into therapy a couple of years later, because it's like, again, I'm not being the mother that I want to be, and I need support in being that person, which of course did not only shift the way I was a mother, you know, it shifted the way I was at work and the way I was a, a wife and the way I was a sister and a daughter and, you know, a friend. Because that's what happens when you, when I shift, when there's something transformational happening to me, it doesn't stay within the books of maybe where you started. It is everywhere. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And it also makes me think about the whole thing where you want uh, more agency. You're basically, you want to be a more round character that's three-dimensional and is able to pull off more um, more responses to life from a larger repertoire that you have at your disposal. And this also to me, as I understand Tanki's and so far, it's also a, a moment of, of joy as you can recognize, recognize an opportunity for you 
to learn something and to react in a way that is not necessarily the way you would have thought you'd react. Like it actually causes you to now consider something and you might do something which you've never done before or act in a way that you've not acted like before. Yeah. Which is the, that's the, that's the opportunity that is inherent in, in the concept of Tankistian, right? And it's interesting it, looking at it. I, I say that I've gotten addicted to Tankistian, you know, I need my daily dose, right? <laughs> so I can have conversations with friends about things that are new to me or that conversation with friends like you, where how you think of something will just make me have that thing. It can be a book I'm reading. It can be a movie or a documentary or a blog or a pod or, again, doing a yoga pose or something. So I, I've come to love being sort of bumped up against those things. But that does not mean that I always crave it. There are moments when there is a tankespian, you know, bumping along, coming up at me. And I just say, thanks, but no thanks. Not right now. I can't take it, you know. So it's an opportunity that is there, but it's not, I don't have to. It's not mandatory. I don't have to accept and invite in all of the tankespian that come, you know, bumping around in my life. It's like, I can say thanks, but no thanks, not right now. And I kind of have this, maybe it's a fatalistic view, but you know, if it's something that's important for me, if there's something that is kind of, you know, written in the stars that this is a, a path Helena needs to take, it will come again. It's not a one shot mm -hmm. and then I'm, you know, screwed. It's like, I can say thanks, but no thanks, not right now, because I'm low of resources or I'm busy with another Tankaspian or whatever it is. If it's important, it will come back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very clear, intimately connected with curiosity, right? And when, when we are too much into some habit of ours that, at some point just becomes our character because we're so um, repetitive in our behavior and our responses. Uh, that is really a lack of curiosity, right? And when you allow your curiosity to actually uh, operate as well and you, you're allowing yourself to follow it, that's when you find new things and that's when you kind of come online and be able and you're starting to be able to actually experiment and tinker and check different things and be a more wholesome person. Um, and it also makes sense that at times in our lives, we can't really jump every, uh, jump down every rabbit hole that we encounter because that can actually be chaotic and, and destabilizing in a way. Mm -hmm. So I can really relate to you there. These days, I can't even get to you know, 20% of the articles and podcasts that I would have um, before I started being more active. Mm -hmm. I think there's a period where you can absorb, 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 absorb. But at some point, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's something like having a child. Maybe it's just reaching a point of maturity where you feel like you also need to 
um, broadcast some thoughts back out in the world and not just hoard them inside that you have to kind of, um, yeah, take, take the volume down a bit on, on what you're taking in, in terms of new things that pick your curiosity. Mm. And I was asked, um, I was in a Swedish podcast, uh, a while ago and I was asked about Tankespian, you know, is it for everybody and, and stuff? And that was what I said. It's like, if you aren't a curious person or if you don't, you know, if you aren't expressing curiosity, then I really don't think that you will have any use of Tankespian, really, because it will just be frustrating and annoying and irritating, right? But if there is a curiosity in you, and you might be in a place where, I mean, I, I know that that has been true for me. It's like, before I started my transformation, I was a lot less curious than I am now. It's like, oh, I am so interested in people. People fascinate me to no end. It's like, what is there? What, you know? And I think this is very intimately linked to me stopping being so harsh on myself because when I was harsh on myself, I was actually terrified of what you might say that might trigger something in me that I didn't like. So I would just not be very curious about you because I was afraid of what I might find within me. And I wasn't curious about what was within me because I was so harsh on myself that I knew that whatever I found, I would be whacking myself over the head with a shovel, you know, which isn't very nice. So curiosity really, you know, turned down volume low, uh, for me. And then it's been increasing and increasing and increasing. And it's quite up high, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, with conversations, isn't it fascinating that the more you're at peace with yourself, and, and the more that you are actually curious about other people, and it comes hand in hand with the recognition that you're not your thoughts, right? a recognition that actually you can actually get into somebody else's shoes without adopting every crazy thing that they say. That doesn't also mean that you're that. So if we are in the habit of completely identifying with our thoughts, we're also completely unable to ask people exactly what they think or uh, get to the bottom of their thoughts because then we might entertain the thought that they're thinking and we will immediately feel as if, you know, we are them or something like that. And that terrifies us and we stay away from that. But if we don't identify with our own thoughts, we're able to just ask people questions and really listen to them yeah. and actually learn something about how they see the world and see the world as they do without becoming them or without being triggered. Is that something yeah. that you've noticed? Yeah. And I think that there's one more thing becoming them. You know, if I listen to you and you have this really weird thought, then I will either get it or everybody else will think that I have it too. But it can also be 
hearing your thoughts on something and immediately drawing it into me in the sense that he's really speaking about me. He really doesn't like me. And, Mm. oh, he's judging me now. He should, he, he's, He won't say it to me directly, but indirectly, he really doesn't like me and what I'm thinking, et cetera. You know, so it's, I think that's a very, very common thing. And I think it's centered on the fact that I am the center of my universe, just as you are the center of your universe. And it is baffling to me that I am not the center of your universe too, because (laughs) I am the center of my universe, you know, which is... Why, if you walk into a lecture hall and you have a big pimple or, you know, oh, you had your shirt on inside out or something, you immediately think that everybody is looking at you. Everybody is judging you. Everybody is just focused on you and the mistake that I've made, right? But they're busy thinking about their own pimples, right? Because they're the center of their universe. It's just me being the center of my universe. And that's also one of those Oh, yeah. Kind of just as with the, the I don't have to believe every thought I have. This is the same type of feeling in me. It kind of makes me relax a bit and, you know, be able to play around more, be able to experiment and tinker, as you say, because, hey, what's the worst that can happen? You know, so far I haven't died. So far the sky hasn't fallen down on me. So far the earth hasn't opened up and swallowed me whole. You know, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another thing with, with, when it comes to interacting with other people is that it's actually much easier to listen. Like conceptually, it's easy to listen because it comes with the understanding that you're not the center of the universe. So for now, this isn't about you. And it's easy to talk about some, somebody else. Um, but in practice, it's, it's really hard for us. And not many of us are actually able to, to listen completely and reflect what the other person um, really needs to, to hear or see. And so we're not effective in helping others as well. If we're not, if we constantly think about ourselves and I think that it's almost paradoxical, but once we're able to go and talk to somebody and actually listen and let them be um, actually give them the feeling that they are actually the center of my universe too. Um, first of all, it's greatly appreciated by people. Mm-hmm. They can say things that they are um, sometimes used to getting a response, a certain response from other people who think they're the center of their own universe. Suddenly they have in front of them this person who might be completely containing um, what they're saying. And that could start a shift in their own thinking and in their own understanding, because this itself could be a a Tankispirian moment for them because they encounter a response that they couldn't foresee Mm -hmm. because you're actually listening now. Um, So this is something I want to say. It's not just about us and about how much better it is to kind of lack an ego in interaction. But very quickly, once you're able to listen to other people, you're able to do a lot of good for them and really facilitate the same change for them. 
Yeah, and I, I, I mean, this is one of the things that I use. I'm, I'm a, I'm a coach, life coach, I guess is the word. And I do a lot of, I do coach walks or coach talks. So either my favorite is to do a coach walk, which I can only do with people who are here, right? But I live just next to a recreational area, and it's just wonderful to be out walking with with a coach client because. When you're in movement physically, it's really hard to be stuck mentally. And, you know, it's something else than sitting in a conference room or, you know, you have a table between you perhaps, or there's a whiteboard on the wall or, or something. It's like nature brings something else to the conversation as such. But I, I, I try to go in like naked in essence, when I coach, I'm, I'm fairly naked in, in that way that I don't have an agenda. I don't have anywhere that I want you to go or get to or anything. You might as a client have something and I will help and guide you, but I won't hold you to that in, in, you know, go to another coach if that's what you need. Um, so it is, it is much more of a conversation when, when I do coaching, but I listen. Oh, I listen. I listen so much. And now and again, I have this feeling that a thought pops into my head from somewhere, from that magical mystery of, of the universe where thoughts are invented, <laughs> which I would say is outside of me for the better part. And I go, no, no, no. And I kind of deflect it. And it pops back in. And I maybe go, no, 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 again. Third time around, okay, getting the message. This is a question to be asked or it's a statement to say or whatever it is. And I say it. And I have this sense of thoughts like being stacked up behind my head. It's like there's a number of thoughts just waiting to pop into my head once the one that I'm currently engaging with has said bye-bye, right? My feeling is that when I'm in a, one of those coaching situations, that thought has been wanting to pop into my client's head for quite some time, but it can't. It's stuck on the thought at hand right? So it does the next bet is popped into my head instead saying, Hey, mm. this is the one, this is the one. And so I say it, and it's usually, usually those things are Tankespian moments. And again, it's not devised by me. It's rather, you know, I'm a conduit. Uh, it comes through me because it was a blockage in the other person, which I think is to a large extent is what a good coaching relationship or a good therapy relationship can be about. Yeah, I love it because it highlights um, something that we've, that we've talked about before, but this really highlights it is the fact that if you're um, free, if you don't come with a game plan, if you don't come with um, any sort of uh, higher order strategy, and you're there, again, you're in the moment, you have a larger repertoire of, of um, activities to choose from and reactions and actions to choose from. And then life becomes a lot more 
uh, improvisational dance than something that you need to um, beat, some kind of maze that you have to go through, some kind of game you have to win. Um, so I really like the fact that you're, um, yeah, surrendering to this um, impromptu kind of winging it attitude, which I, uh, I'm with you 100% of that. Also, as a tour guide, I was one of those that I did not have a game plan. I was able to just make um, quick decisions on just going yeah. and changing a, the plan or somewhere. Because I always felt that if you come with a plan and you're so fixated on executing that plan, you know, any, any kind of deviance from the plan is really threatening. Yeah. And... I really like that that it seems that your focus in conversation is to actually now uh, propagate Tankispian moments for people because it's mm -hmm. always it's always a moment when things can go off off the script off the usual script and and take an interesting turn for the better. So I really love it, and I think it's 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 about time that we learn of the moment when you've actually conceived of the word itself. Like how did those two parts actually come together? So the word is not my word. I got this word in February or March of 2013 on Twitter. I was really gearing up my involvement in the Swedish school debate. Um, and somebody, two people who were also in the Swedish school debate, two teachers, were having a conversation. And the one was saying to the other that, oh, I'd read your latest blog post and it was such a piece of Tankespian and I love it. And I just went, Tankespian. Oh, <laughs> so I grabbed onto that word and I haven't left it. You know, that word has been with me ever since. So in the past, you know, in the past year, two years, I have really, you know, I have tankispian.com is my site and I'm really pushing Tankispian. But even if you had Googled it, you know, prior to 2019 or, or 18 or something, you would find either me or friends of mine. So it really has been a word that I have been deliberately and very consciously using as a way also to make sure that this concept is alive in my life. Um, and so I, I usually, I, you know, it's like, yes, I'm not the mother of this word. And my friend Caspian, he says, oh, come off it, Helena. It's like, you are, you just didn't invent <laughs> the word, but everybody else who uses it, uses it because I have used it. And it's so interesting because I am, I was giving a, a kind of a TED talky talk at an, um, at a conference for investors in, in October in Swedish. And I was, you know, task to give something that you wouldn't necessarily hear in such a day. It's like, yeah, that's the only thing I can talk about because investments, that's not my area. 
And I was saying that I'm a super spreader, which <laughs> in these days of COVID, mm, yeah. you know, maybe has weird connotations, but I really am a super spreader. If I like something or love something, I will share it. I share books I've read. I share podcasts I've listened to. I share movies I've seen or documentaries or a shop or the chiropractor in Limham that I go to, you know, it's like, I will share it with people. So I have really shared Tankispian and it is starting to, it is starting to take off in the sense that it's soon hitting a critical mass. So I know for a fact that there are people in outside of Sweden who use Tankisbjörn as a concept, as a word that is a part of their vocabulary. And it just makes me so happy. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's amazing. Yeah, I just recently I heard an interview with uh, Daniel Goldman, who is famous for emotional intelligence. And he also said he, he did not invent it. It was actually in a different paper. But since then, everybody really they hear they hear emotional intelligence. They hear uh, Daniel Goldman's name in their head. So yeah, at some point, it just has to be um, recognized that you know you're the the propagator of the of the term. Yeah. Now that's yeah. that's beautiful, and it's. I'm I'm also interested in that going back to the fact that you said it's 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 an invitation, but we shouldn't always take the invitation. Um, I think that's that's also a, a good way of of looking at it because when when you encounter a Tankispian moment, then you can go with it and let it kind of rock your boat a little bit, so things don't actually crystallize or ossify and stay in one place, but instead you're you're about to now um, explore something new, but. Would you feel that if you did follow every opportunity to to go down a rabbit hole, like how would that negatively affect life in terms of is it then just kind of chaotic? If we um, is it is it causing us to dwell too much on too many small details so that we can't really function on the on the level of? Oh, I think that what comes up for me is fundamentalism. That if I were to jump down the rabbit hole following every Tankespian, that is fundamentalism. And I would say that fundamentalism is quite anti-life in the sense that we are not supposed to do, you know, there's no silver bullet. There is nothing that is, you know, always right. It's like, yes, water is absolutely crucial to life. But if I were to drink water all the time, I would die. I can drink too much water in too short a time and I will die. Right. So, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing here. It's like, I'm not, I'm not a fundamental, I'm not a fundamentalist. It's like, yes, I love dancing, but not every moment of every single day. I need to eat and rest and sleep and go to the bathroom and take a shower and hang with the kids and do the gardening. You know, I, 
and and Tankispian is the same. It's like, yes, I love Tankispian, but not every single moment. It's like that's too much. That's not what that's not what life is about. Life is about movement. And if you were to chase every Tankispian, in essence, I would say that that is a way to ossify because then you're not then you're not choosing then you're not using your agency then you're not checking mm. in with yourself what serves me most in this moment is it to go down this rabbit hole or should i go lay down on the sofa and rest for a while yeah that's i love it and it really it links with something that i've been thinking about recently about the whole concept of optimization which i hear a lot about online and in books you know how to optimize for th for certain things and constantly make things better and you end up i think with those uh schedules that are full of very small kind of uh windows where you have to fill them with things that are constantly optimizing and at some point the thought sprung in my head that uh to live well living well actually entails passing up on a lot of opportunities to optimize things you know yeah. and it's it's exactly that dance that we're going through that in real time you should know not to force things and go for the most spectacular thing for the most optimized things but just the flow is more important than the um than the actual content sometimes or or how things seem because optimization well yeah that kind of you know, I can think of somebody who's optimizing their CV, right? And then from the outside, you have this CV, you see a perfect life. Except if you went into the inside, there would be no flow there because everything is directed at creating this facade uh, mm -hmm. that can be shown to people. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, it links back to what you said. And I love that you said that. You said improvised dancing. Uh, I do Lindy hop, like swing dancing, and I love it. And it is just that. It's like, yes, there are moves, but when you just dance socially, you just play. And I, I so far, I only dance the follower. I haven't been taking any courses to be the lead. And yes, the lead leads, but... I, as a follower, man, do I have agency. And it's my responsibility to make sure that I'm having a good time on the dance floor. And if my lead is doing something that I don't want to do, I get to choose, right? So it's like, it is this fun way of being in, in life. It's like, and, and now and again, there's this really, really fast song coming on and I love it. And now and again, three fast songs in a row a fourth one no sorry i'm sitting this one out you know so all the time being in this uh flow of what wants to happen um for me also provides me with moments of tankespian because it shakes me out of this i'm supposed to do this or this is supposed to look like that what if it isn't, you know, what, you know, what fun can I have if I don't do that thing? And then 
I have, you know, I dance with the lead and they know, uh, they do something that I'm not prepared with. I laugh because it's fun to like totally mess shit up. And then I go again, show me again, you know, and two or three times and then maybe, oh yeah, I'm getting it right. So it is also a, 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 a much more fun way of being in life than if oh, I need to get it right the first time. No, you don't, my friend. Nobody ever needs to get it right the first time. It's like you you are allowed to learn, to play, to experiment. Do. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, I for me, it's become uh, such an important uh, thought or idea that is, uh, is central to my, uh, to my attempt at living well is that you don't have to make the right decision. You just have to make a decision that is within range of reasonable decisions. Um, and we don't have the control to actually control reality in a way where everything that we want to happen happens. We just have to um, kind of define a range of possible reasonable decisions and and hope for the best and once you also absolve yourself of that responsibility of seeing a specific outcome you can actually enjoy the process because it's not that you're happiness hinges on some sort of very specific outcome which you have no control over anyway um yeah this this is great I'm, I'm being mindful of the time so we've gone over an hour and i'd like to ask you uh if there are any ways or tips that you can give people on how to be more um attuned to actually Tankespirin moments in life? Is there a way to start noticing them? Or is it just about now that we have the concept in our minds, kind of see where it springs up? Well, I would, I would say if you are prone to curiosity, start to be curious about yourself and your reactions. When you come up against something that makes you go, ha, huh? what was that? How did that? What? Me? No. You know, finding those moments and then you can see, oh, yeah, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Because I have this way of being or doing or believing or thinking. And here I came up, up against some other way of thinking or doing or being or believing. Ah, huh. I wonder what would happen if I... And then you start to have fun and play with life. Um, I would say that that is a good way to do this. If you are extremely harsh with yourself, the way I was, go really gently. Because chances are you are starting, you will start to observe yourself and then judge and beat up on yourself. And that has never served anybody because, you know, you do that two, three times and then your internal system goes, this is not fun. I'm going to stop looking, right? Because yeah. I'm just getting beat up again and again and again. It's like no fun. So if you are of that mind, and I call it uh, an epidemic of harshness, there's a lot of people who are that way. Observe. 
and try not to judge. And if you observe yourself judging, don't judge yourself for judging. Observe and go, huh, I wonder if next time maybe I'll be able to do this and not judge. I'll be interested to find out, right? You know, so really start to find this way of doing gentle with yourself and with others. And then you add the edge, which for me is tankespian, right? You add the edge and you can start to have a lot more fun. Um, but go easy is my, is my number one tip, um, I would say. Yeah, lovely. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, introducing me to this wonderful concept. And it just resonates with me on so many levels, as you've, as you've seen. And I'm sure we, uh, we could and perhaps we will uh, explore more angles of that. Uh, before we say goodbye, I'd love you to um, let people know where they can actually find your work, thoughts, um, anything you want to mention here. Uh, where people can follow you, that'd be great. So the easiest way is to go to tankespian.com, which is where you will find a blog that's like jam-packed with, with blog posts. Um, I haven't been writing much lately, but it's still there and there's like 2,000 something posts. So there's there's plenty to go around. There's my podcast, Tankespian with Helena Roth, that to start with, feature what is on the blog and what is also an ebook and an audiobook available on my, my website or on Amazon, at least the ebook, on doing gentle with an edge. So that started as a blog series. Uh, and then I've kind of tweaked it a little bit. And then I do meandering conversations in my pod, which is just the most fun because we never know where it will take us um so that's i would say that's an acquired taste not everybody's into that stuff which is the way it's supposed to be not everything is for everybody um but tankespian.com is the best place to find me what about a twitter handle do you have one i have one it's at hero underscore respondi because I started tweeting before uh, I had Tankespian. Um, you can change your handle. Yeah, but I've <laughs> had that handle for so long. Okay. I don't know that I want to. Um, maybe I should consider that. Um, and, you know, you can find me. I'm at Helena Roth on, on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn, you know. But if you if you just type in Tankespian, you will find you will find me. Rest assured, it's I'm quite amazing. easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. I'll I'll link to those in the show notes. Uh, well, Helena, this has been a pleasure, a great pleasure for me. So thank you so much for coming on, and I hope that uh, listeners could find some pearls of wisdom in everything that um, transpired here today. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a blast.